This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The biggest battle we will ever have to face is the battle between you and you. It's the battle of taking your mind to that limit and then breaking through. On the Mindful Experiment podcast, we will share concepts, universal laws, and interviewing individuals who have done just that, who have gone through the dark times and through those moments allowed their light to shine bright. I'm your host, Dr. Vic Manzo, and I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and taking this journey with me as we discover different avenues to break through those limits, expand your reality, and evolve into the person you desire to be. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and this is Dr. Vic, and you are on another amazing episode on the Mindful Experiment as... I had the distinct pleasure to interview Heather Hansen. Heather is an amazing individual doing amazing things, and I was excited to have her on. Uh, she's been a t- for over 20 years, Heather's been a trial lawyer advocating for her clients in the courtroom. She's consistently been named one of the top 50 female lawyers in Pennsylvania, is an anchor at the Law and Crime Network, and has appeared on NBC. Fox News Channel and CNN. She shows individuals and businesses how to stand up for themselves, their ideas, and to become their own best advocate. Heather's coming out with a book called The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself. And it's going to be coming out in April of 2019. It was a great interview to have. Um, I'm I'm a geek for words. I love looking at root words, vibration frequency of words, testing where it's at, and all this great stuff. And 
Heather and I geeked out a little bit on some words and especially the word elegant. She'll dive in and explain to you what really elegant means and why she chose elegant warrior and so much more. She'll share some things about questioning and what questions you use and the systematic approaches that she uses with people she works with and how to truly break through, how to truly help themselves be able to you know, not lose themselves, be able to empower themselves in any situation whatsoever. And the cool thing about it, what she does is she does it through her experience in law. And she does it in the process of, you know, asking, listening and so forth, asking questions and so much about that and, and how to listen when it comes to ask questions and how to be present when it comes to the answers and so much more. So she really, really we dive into a lot of that stuff and so many great things. So this was one of my my fun, uh, as always, fun uh, interviews because she really um, – Brought a lot to the table. And anytime I can slightly geek out with somebody, it's always a lot of fun to do that also. So with no further ado, I do not want to take any more thunder away from this amazing individual and what she's doing. I want to introduce you guys to Heather Hansen. So Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Dr. Vic. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. There's uh, uh, lots to t- discuss here. You're doing so many great things and you've had so much success in your life. And it's I'm just so excited to dive in and just share with the listeners all about this. So um, first, thank you for being here. Um, oh my gosh, my pleasure. <laughs> so one of the first things I always like to ask is, you know, sometimes like, you know, you're, you've been a trial lawyer for over 20 years, correct? Yeah. And you, and you've been very successful with that. And, you know, what was it that... We, did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer or was there like experiences in life that kind of led you down that path? You know, it's a great question. My first major in college was uh, a journalism type major that they had in my school. And then I realized that the, the climb for journalism was going to take a longer time than I wanted to take before I started getting out there and really doing the work. So I switched to psychology and I graduated with a psychology degree. But I really loved asking questions and sort of exploring the human psyche by asking questions and found that there was no better way to do that than in the law. And that drew me to law school and immediately to trial law. I knew I didn't want to be a tax lawyer or a corporate lawyer. I definitely wanted to be standing in front of a jury, asking questions and making connections. Very interesting. And I'm assuming you you are the master of asking questions, which I know we're going to dive into in just a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, I, I know the master, there's a lot of great attorneys out there. But I do often say to people, you know, so many times, Dr. Brick, when I tell people that I'm a trial attorney, they say, oh, I should have been an attorney. I'm really good at arguing. And <laughs> the reality is that I win my cases not by arguing. That's only a small piece of what I do. The majority of the trial, whether it be two days or two weeks, is just asking questions. And so it is an enormous skill that you have to build and grow. But no matter what you do in life, asking questions will help you to do it better. Couldn't agree with you more there. And being being a chiropractor, it's kind of the same thing when I have to ask a gazillion questions just to get to the root of why, what's the motivation and inspiration the person's coming into my office and so forth. So I can totally see that. Now, when you're asking questions, because I I know being a lawyer, I wanted to be a lawyer one time in my life. And I thought it was because of arguing to arguing too at one point. But then I learned it's, it's more of like a curiosity thing and you have to stay open with that. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, it's it depends on who you're asking. I love the fact that you talk about being a chiropractor and asking questions because the majority of my legal work has been defending doctors and hospitals. And I find that the doctors who get sued less often and also who do better at trial are those that connect with their patients that way. And so there's different ways to ask questions. At trial, if I am cross-examining a hostile witness, the way that I ask questions and the way that I prepare to ask questions is very different than if I'm examining my own client and hoping to help that person connect with the jury. So there's different ways to approach the preparation and there's different ways to approach the actual questioning when the time comes. Very cool. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and it's a, the way that you're asking questions is also leading, you're, you're creating like a story with it. Is that, is that also correct? Just to, yeah. Everything yeah. is story. You know, <laughs> when I get up in front of the jury at the beginning, I give an opening and I tell my story. And then the other side tells a very different story. And ultimately, it's up to the jury to choose which story they believe or which story most resonates with them. I love that part of the law, Dr. Vic, because I'm a huge believer and we get to choose our own reality. And it all depends on what story you choose to believe. And so, yes, I tell the best story that I can with the evidence that I have and hope to build my credibility, ask the right questions and support that story. So the jury will come along on that ride with me. I love that. That's awesome. Um, and now I know you're doing a lot of stuff where you're, you're, you're teaching people, sharing information on how to, you know, ask questions, empower their life and things like that. When did you start to like make that shift and say, yes. I want to start doing this? You know, I've been trying cases for over 20 years and I love it and it's very rewarding, but it's also very competitive. And it was time for me to be a little bit more creative and collaborative. So I started doing a lot of speaking, mainly to doctors, nurses, healthcare professionals on how to build better connections with their patients. And I found that the same tools that I used at trial, asking questions, learning to object, overcoming objections, building credibility, persuading, all of those tools were tools that were really great for doctors, nurses, call center employees, even CEOs. So that grew into a practice where I now work with individuals doing coaching and companies doing consulting on how to use the tools from the courtroom to better advocate for yourself, your business, your ideas, etc. I love that. And is there, you know, um, when it came to like, is there certain uh, ways you have you share? Like, is there a certain like step by step process that you kind of say, hey, this is what kind of like my three points that I, you know, starting out recommending anything along those lines? Yeah, I, I have a pyramid that I work through with my clients. And the first step is evidence. And we review sort of the facts that are available because, you know, in every trial, just like in every uh, issue in your life, Dr. Vic, everybody has the same evidence. We all have the same facts available to us. And it's what we do with those facts that, as you said earlier, what story we create that determines where we go in our lives. So we start with evidence. Then the next step is asking questions and indulging that curiosity that you talked about before. And we can ask questions to learn, to challenge, to gain perspective. And we go through all the different ways to ask questions and specific tools you can use depending on what your goal is with the question. Then the next thing we go through is objections, learning how to make them effectively and also how to overcome 
them when other people make objections. And then we go to what's probably my favorite part, which is building credibility, because I don't think there's anything more important to a relationship than trust and respect. And we talk about how to build that and how to build it relatively quickly, because I need to do that in front of a jury or else I can't win. And then finally, at the very end, we get to the proof. We get to the ability to take that evidence that was the base of the pyramid and have it actually show something that we want to prove. I love that. Pretty straightforward, simple, and easy. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, is, it is basic, but it's definitely, <laughs> these are skills that take some time, and there's specific ways to do things that make it a little bit easier. I think, would you, you know, objections, I know when I was in, you know, coming out of school and they used to talk about objections, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, when someone's going to object something you do and it's all about the objection is a, uh, is a turn or a mode for opportunity. Um, just, I think there's a phrase, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, would you agree that sometimes objections are just great ways to able to turn things around in a sense? I think that objections are definitely an opportunity and, and it depends on what side of the objection you're on. If you're coming to the place where you need to overcome an objection, it's definitely an opportunity to gain the other person's perspective. You know, for me in court to overcome an objection, I need to know where the other side's coming from and I need to know where the judge or the decider is coming from. So you need to have that person's perspective and then it's an opportunity to actually make a point. So I agree with you wholeheartedly that an objection is an opportunity. And it's the same when you're the one making an objection. That's also an opportunity to tell a little bit more of your story, to gain some authenticity, and to maybe even show some vulnerability. And all of these things have been proven to make people better in their relationships, to make them better managers at work, to make them more successful all around. So I, I think that objections need to be looked at as opportunities. Dr. Vick, your point is very well taken because if they are, you can really succeed through objecting. Yeah, and I'm one that loves hearing objectives, uh, objections. Uh, I wouldn't say before. If you asked me five to six years ago, I'd be like, eh, you know what, they're okay, but I'll have to get through it. Now I'm like, it, it, it just opens a door to something new. And you're like, ooh, hold on, let me, let, me, let me really be in that space for a minute. Yeah, it really helps you to see other people's perspectives. And that's so much of what we do, whether you're a chiropractor like you are, a consultant or a coach like I am, or in my work in, in the courtroom. Objections allow you to see other people's perspectives. And if you take a step back from the emotion of it, you know, feeling challenged doesn't always feel good and our ego gets involved. If you can sort of put that aside and see it as an opportunity, it's one of the greatest opportunities you can get. I love it. And is is the objections the only, one of the only ways you can see someone else's perspective or are there other things that you can do to really tap into their other perspective? The greatest way to see another's perspective is by asking questions. We imagine that we can put ourselves in other people's shoes, but the truth is all that really does, Dr. Vic, is piss people off to put it bluntly. (laughs) There are studies that show that people get really angry if you assume that you know how they're feeling. So the best way to find out how someone's feeling is to ask questions and get their story. And there's ways to ask those questions to really gain the other person's perspective as well. So I, that's one of the things that I love to work with people to use questions to do is to gain others' perspective. Because when we have that perspective, we're going to be far more persuasive 
We're going to build credibility so much more quickly and so much more effectively. And that's going to allow us to really be our own best advocates. I love that. And that lines up with something I used to say at a very young age was about like, we're, we all come from different worlds. We speak different languages, even though we speak English, but we, the way we express words and how we share and all that is really two different worlds. And if we just learn how to try to understand the other person's world, it makes things so much easier. Yeah, not only easier, but more effective. I mean, when we're working together effectively with psychological safety and everybody is sort of trusting one another, then you are far more likely to succeed, whether that be in business, whether that be at home in your in your family, or whether that be in just in your interpersonal communications. Once you understand where another person is coming from, it's much easier to go to the place where you want to go together. I love that. And I think the, the you know, unconditional love or true love, the real meaning of love is understanding someone. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting. Marianne Williamson is one of my favorite authors. And oh, awesome. <laughs> Sorry. Her, yeah, she's one of my favorites. I think it's her quote that says that we think that we need to understand each other in order to love each other, but we really need to love each other in order to understand. And I do think that if you approach someone with as close as you can get to love, you know, and in the courtroom, a lot of people don't love each other. (laughs) There's not a lot of love going on. So there we try to start with respect. You know, if you go, go into the courtroom with respect for the other side, that they have their perspective and their perspective is just as true to them as your perspective is to you. Then oftentimes at the end of the case, we can actually leave with a little bit more understanding. Yeah, I, I love that. And, it, you know, it's one of those things, I mean, you, you brought up, you know, like sometimes we like to assume where someone is or put them in a box and it doesn't uh, make them happy. And the brain loves to fill in spaces. So, like, if you have partial story, it's going to fill in the rest of that story to make it whatever belief based on your experiences. And so it really uh, I love how, you, you know, asking those questions is really powerful to help dive deeper into that and make that yeah. connection. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the four agreements. That is another book that I yes, love. Yes, yep. Don one Miguel. of the agreements is don't assume anything, but that's so much easier said than done. <laughs> you know, we, we, I do it all the time, you know? Huh? One of the things I highly recommend with my clients is to walk into a meeting or a, an interaction or a happy hour with three questions that you want answered. Because if you're walking into something with questions as opposed to assumptions, you're going to leave with new information. And that new information is going to help you to be more successful, help you to build better relationships, and overall just help you to be a happier person. I love it. That's so true in so many ways. I mean, you know, Tony Robbins says, you know, the quality questions, you know, create a quality of life. And I kind of took that. I'm like, you know what? The quality of the questions you ask determine the quality of life you experience. And it's just so true. And I just don't think we ask enough questions in this day and age. Yeah, well, you know, it's so funny because a lot of studies show, and and the Harvard Business Review has been exploring this quite a bit, a lot of studies show that we think that asking questions is going to make us look dumb. But in truth, the people that ask more questions are actually seen as more intelligent by those around them. And another study that I love to cite when I talk to my groups is for for those of your listeners who are single. There's a study that shows that in those speed dating uh, interactions that they have, the people who asked the most questions got the most dates. So if you want more dates, for people to like you more and for people to think that you're more intelligent, you really want to start asking more questions. But it's a practice. 
You know, and that's why writing them down before a meeting or coming up with three questions before you go into a happy hour or even before you walk in, you know, from here, I'm headed down to um, a co-working space. And if I, on the walk over there, think of three questions that I might get answered at that space, it leaves me in a more open state of mind than if I walk in just sort of not thinking about what others in there are doing and thinking. That's so true. And, and it just, it, it preps you a little bit. So I, I like that. And I love how you said, you know, people ask more questions, they seem smarter. So it is true. I've, I've, I've um, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm always amazed, like some of them, the masters at like asking all these questions. I'm like, how do they think of some of these things right yeah. off the bat? So amazing. Um, but I love how you have, you know, there's a quote that I heard you say was bad advice and correct me if I'm wrong, but it said, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Yeah. So that is something that lawyers are often taught. Really? I disagree. Yeah, because and it's on cross-examination, you don't want to be surprised Mm -hmm. by an answer. You know, by the time that you get to court, so there's two reasons that that advice is sort of bad advice. One is that that ignores the fact that for two years before you got to the courtroom as a lawyer, you've been asking questions. You've had the opportunity to ask all the questions you don't know the answer to before you get to court. And so by the time that you get to court, you should know most of the answers. But also, I think the better advice is never ask a question that you can't deal with the answer to. Mm. Because sometimes you might not know the answer, but you need to find a way to make that answer work for you as best you can. So the two things that sort of counter that advice are one preparation before you get to court and then the ability to think on your feet and be a little bit light footed once you're in the courtroom. I like that. That's so true. And when I heard you say that quote, it made me go back to my old days where I was told, uh, I had a dad that always told me, don't ask questions when the answers don't matter. <laughs> yeah, but that's, a, <laughs> that's, a, that's actually great advice as well. You know, when you have the chance to ask a question, you want to really do your best to make sure it's a good one and put some thought into it. Exactly. I love that. And do you have, like, I mean, we talked about the pyramid system and so forth and what you do and whatnot. Um, is there any like main questions that you love people to ask themselves or help them dive deeper in? You know, I, I have a book coming out in April and there's a whole chapter on questions. And one of the questions that I talk about in that book is it's not my question. It's a, it actually, I first heard it. I'm an anchor at Law and Crime Network, which is Dan Abrams' new network. And we stream trials and we streamed the Larry Nasser trial. He's the, uh, guy who was accused of and, and is in jail for molesting all these young women. Yes. And originally, only a smallish number of women were going to come forward. And then Judge Aquilina, who was the judge for that hearing, the way that she asked one question, in my opinion, is why so many other women came forward. Because when each woman came in front of her to tell the story, she didn't say, what happened to you? She didn't say, what do you want to say? She said, tell me what you want me to know. And I think that that opens up so much possibility for the person answering the question. It doesn't put words in their mouth. It doesn't assume anything. And it allowed those women to do just that. And one by one, more and more women wanted to tell her what they wanted her and the world to know. So that is by far my favorite question. It's a question I now use when I initially meet with my clients because sometimes they tell me things that I never would have even thought to ask if I just had this list of questions on my legal pad. 
I may have to borrow that one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's, listen, it's hers, not mine. I'm actually, you know, she and I talk about that story in my book because it changed the way that I approach questioning. And um, in my, I got the opportunity to talk to her a little bit about that. And she's just a phenomenal woman. I love that. I'll have to check that out more. Av, when you're asking like specific questions, I know you talk a little bit about potential and so forth in there. And is there ways you can turn and phrase questions to open up potential even more? Yeah, it's, uh, I, you know, I love the research you've done, Dr. Vick. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm um, on my website, and I'm actually going to be offering this again for the new year because people loved it. On my website, I did this 30-day rubber band challenge. So there's this psychological study, and I'm going to try to make it short so I don't take up your whole podcast talking about this study. Uh, but no they, they gave the um, participants a bunch of objects, including a rubber band a piece of paper and a pencil that didn't have an eraser. And they asked people to write something on the paper. And then they said, now erase it. Now, some of the people they had said, this is a rubber band. Other people, they had said, this could be a rubber band. Those who had been told this could be a rubber band, 40% of them thought to use it as an eraser. But those who were told this is a rubber band, only 3% of them thought to use it as an eraser. So the difference between using the word is or asking the questions with words like is versus could be opens up so much possibility and so much potential. So anytime you have the opportunity to say, you know, could it be this way? Could we be trying this? Could it be that this is a better way to do it? Or could it be that you're feeling this way? We open up potential. So I love asking could questions. I love that. Yeah, and it's so true. You can, even just the energy of it, you know, it's different. If, yep. When you just ask, you know, this could be that, or it could be this, or it could be that, the door is open. Where that's, that's exactly right. I mean, if the door is open, there's so much more possibility. And our cre- creative juices get flowing with those words. We start to imagine all of the possibilities instead of being stuck in what we think is our reality. I love that. that. That is so awesome. You know, how do we, you know, one of the things is how do we listen to the answers to the questions? How do we, you know, when you ask those questions, how do you get to be any tips on how to be like present and just be able to really hone in and be in the moment there? Yeah. And you bring up an, a fabulous point because if we're asking tons of questions and not listening to the answers, how much good is it doing us? A huge part of curiosity and asking questions is listening. And there's a couple things that I talk to my clients about that. One of the things I do is I have them write down the word listen and then rearrange the letters and see if they can make another word. Can you do it? Dr. Vic, I know I'm putting you on the spot and you're probably, uh, but what it, I'm I'm right. I'm writing it out as we speak. So let me see here. I'll give you a minute. It is it uh, L I S S I L here. You're silent. There we go. Yeah, I was like, I know I heard this before. Yeah, <laughs> and a lot of people have done it before, but there's another word there as well, and that is enlist. Ooh. Yeah. So okay. this is an amazing word. I have a thing for words. I have a thing for words and word origins. And yes. listen is an amazing word because. One of the keys to listening is being silent. And that's not just with your mouth, but also with your brain. 
you know, so many times our brains are working like, what are they going to say? And what am I going to say to what they say? And how can I interrupt here? And if you can silent your brain, and that takes a lot of mindfulness and maybe some meditation in the morning, but if you can silent your brain, you're really going to benefit from those questions. And then you're much more likely to be able to enlist the person you're talking to, to want to be part of your team. So silence is a huge thing. Another thing that I recommend people do with respect to listening is to challenge themselves to really hone in on the tone of voice of the person who's speaking. Because studies show that we are better at reading people's emotions through their tone of voice than with all of the other senses combined. So if you really hone in on the tone of voice, you're going to be able to tell a whole lot about the person who's talking to you. And it also makes listening a little bit more fun. It does. And, you know, I grew up with a, a sister who was deaf. And so there was a blessing behind that because being with deaf people, it's a different world that they live in. Yeah. Um, they see the world so differently. But at the same token, what I got blessed with was reading body language. Yes. Because with sign language, you, they, it's so like, it's funny. I say funny because, you know, they, if you see two people arguing, uh, their hands are moving so fast. But what's really cool is the emotions of their body that's coming off. Yes. And, and and they don't have tone where, I mean, there was a research study, what is it? 93% of communication is nonverbal. Right. And, and you brought up the tone part, which don't, um, don't quote me on this listeners. I think it's like 30 or 40%, but it's roughly around there. But, um, but that is, I love how you said tone though, because it's so critical. Yeah. And there's so much of what you just said. That's important. I too have a lot of people in my life who are, are hard of hearing or deaf and they are amazing listeners right? <laughs> because they, especially if they read lips, they are so attentive. They are listening with their eyes and that is, you know, they're not looking at their phones. They're not looking around the room. They're not looking to see who's better coming in the door to the party. They are completely focused on you. And then too, I mean, listen, a lot of my work that I do is about body language because it's uh, witnesses. Body language is of vital importance to a jury. So things like showing your hands, studies show that if you show your hands, people are much more likely to trust you. And for defendants, especially in criminal cases, which isn't the bulk of my work, but if defendants have their hands on the table as opposed to under the table, the jury finds them far more trustworthy. And that's because in the olden days, when we had to survive, we had to know that the people we were talking to weren't carrying a weapon. So body language is huge. Tone of voice is huge. And all of these things can be important components of listening. And they also make listening more fun because a lot of times we think listening is just purely getting the words into our brain. But if you start to look at it as a challenge, how can I read this tone of voice? What is the tone of voice saying to me? How can I look at this person's body? What is their body showing me? Then listening becomes sort of an all-encompassing endeavor. I love that. And I, I love the science you share there about the studies with the hands showing this way and that way and so forth. It's so amazing how hand positioning and, and all that type of stuff really changes the ballgame. Yeah, I can give you two book recommendations on body language that I'm a huge fan of. Um, Vanessa Van Edwards' Captivate is one that's really good. And I'm looking at the other because I have my bookshelf right in my room. It's <laughs> What Everybody is Saying by Joe Navarro. He is a retired... Um, FBI questioner. And so he talks a lot about his uh, reading body language in that. I love that. I'm going to dive into that. I was, I love learning and reading new books. So this is good stuff here. 
Me too. I'm a, I'm a book, I'm a little bit ridiculous. I have, uh, when I, I recently moved and when I moved, my parents came on the day that I was moving in and they were like, what are you going to do with all these books? And I'm like, I don't know, but not get rid of them. I need them. <laughs> <laughs> they need to find a place. It's so true. I know every time we move, my wife will look at me and she's like, well, you got boxes of books. Can you get rid of some? I'm like, no, I'll like, stay with me for life. I ain't getting rid of those. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I call upon them. A book that I think I'll never look at again has all new meaning to me when I pick it up again. It's amazing how that works. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm right now. I'm in a, like a couple months now. I've been doing this where I'm just going back and reading books that I've read before. Um, uh-huh. I don't do that often, and I'll, I'm, I'm amazed at the in-depth material I'm taking now and from a different perspective than where I was back then. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, as you change, the book changes. Love that. Um, so we're talking about body language. We got that going on. I'm trying to read here. Um, I have so many questions to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope I have answers, but that's good. You're you're in a good you're in a good place for this particular discussion. Tell me about it. Um, how do distractions play a role in things? You know, I, I, I talk a lot about distractions when it comes to universal laws and manifesting what it is you like in life. And, and, and that's really the big player there. How do you see distractions playing a role? I, you know, when we talk about distractions, Dr. Vic, what immediately comes to mind for me is technology, because, you know, I'm sure that you're aware of this study. In fact, I think you've talked about this in the podcast before. If you are in a conversation and you have your phone on your desk, it shows that the con- you don't make the same connections. The conversation is not as deep as if you have the phone off of the table. And Simon Sinek has talked about this quite a bit. I think that distractions like that are a huge hurdle to making connections. And so one of the things, and I bet you, you and I could talk about this forever. One of the things that my clients, doctors and nurses at hospitals, see as a, a problem is the electronic medical record getting in the way of some of those connections because rather than serving as an assistant, it sort of becomes a distraction. And unfortunately, technology is not going anywhere. And so we need to find ways to use the technology as a tool and do everything that we can to prevent it from becoming a distraction. Because if we're distracted, we can't be listening. We can't be thinking of the best possible questions. Credibility is really hard to build when you're distracted. No, so much. And and it's so true in so many ways. And it's a huge epidemic we have nowadays. Um, I always tell people like whenever you're on your phone, you actually create like an invisible bubble around you and you enclose yourself in a room where no one else is there because your attention and focus is there instead of being in the room present with everyone. Yeah. And we crave connection and we think we're going to find it in this little machine that we hold in our hand. When in truth, you find it when you look up from that machine and make eye contact with the people around you. And listen, my friends or anyone listening to this is like, you big hypocrite. (laughs) 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 Because we all do it. You know, you have to have practices in place because naturally you won't give that phone up. So I never sleep with my phone in my room. I have a relatively new rule that an hour before bed and an hour after waking up, I do not touch the phone. And these are things that are practices that I, it's non-negotiables because otherwise I can really slip into being, you know, so focused on the phone that I lose sight of what's important. That's so true. And, 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 and you're, you're, you're putting yourself, cause a lot of people realize that you're putting yourself in an environment to succeed. 
right? That's if you right. if you have the phone near you, you're you're, you're increasing the chances uh, to potentially go that route. And Absolutely. so, that, yeah, if you can if you can decrease your temptation, you're more likely to succeed. It's the same thing. So I lost a hundred pounds when I was um, a freshman in college, and one of the things that I found is if I didn't have the food in my dorm room, I was less likely to eat things that I didn't want to be eating. If you don't have your phone next to you in bed, when you wake up at two in the morning, you'll be far more likely to either go back to sleep or meditate until you do. You know, if you can take those temptations out of sight, you are more likely to take them out of mind. So true. I work in my office. We're, we're a big pediatric office. And when I work with moms, of course, one of the things is how do I get my kid to eat, kid to eat healthier? How do I get my kid to not want this? And I'm like, well, first off, I, I, I go, I have to work with you instead of the, the, the child. And like, why? I'm like, you're the one that brings the stuff in the house. If they see you eating it for its present, it's going to yep. be a higher chance of them to want to have that also. Absolutely. It's, you know, it, what you see is what you, it becomes your reality. And the more that you can, you know, there's a, one of the things that sort of resonated with me during that period when I was trying to lose the weight that said, for those who moderation is difficult, abstinence is the answer. So for me, that meant that for a long time, I completely abstained from eating certain foods because I had trouble moderating them. And so when it comes to distractions, you know, you can't, completely abstain from your phone, Mm -hmm. but you can set certain times of the day that you do that. And the other thing, Dr. Vic, that I've tried to do, and I've got to be honest with this with you, I have real trouble with this is I turn the phone to black and white. Have you heard this recommendation? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I, it makes the phone so much less attractive. It also (laughs) makes me hate it. And then I turn it back. (laughs) I love it. But it's another great tool to sort of help you handle the temptation from outside instead of inside. No, so true. And, and, you know, like I do it for, so you do black and white. My phone is actually a very pinkish red color because uh, more for health reasons, but um, with the blue light, but ah. it, and, but it does make it not, not fun. My eyes aren't like, cause I look at pictures and they all have similar colors. There's not much of a difference to them. And so, it, and, and it makes me, I just don't like being on my phone. I just can't stand being on it. Of yeah. course I need, I have to at certain times, but, um, but I love how you said that there's set times for it. Yep. And just do it that way so that you're not uh, doing it. And, and I want to commend you with the whole hour before bed and hour before you get up. That's just huge on a health level, but it's even huge on a you know productivity level because you're not being um, right. You get on your phone first thing in the morning, boom, all these notifications. Yeah. And then you're letting someone else run your day. Yep. You know, and same thing at nighttime. If you look at it right before bed, you're letting someone else run your dreams. Who wants that? You want to be the one running your day. So I have a morning practice that I go through and then I have a practice before bed that I go through and I make sure that the phone isn't part of that. Gotcha. I love it. Do you mind sharing what your morning practice is? Because I'm so big into those things and I love asking that question. Yeah, it's um, I journal every morning, which is a relatively new thing. I've gone back and forth with this over my life, but now it's become, I'd say it's been about three months that I've journaled every day when I first wake up. And then I read a chapter of a book. Usually I'm rereading. Like right now, speaking of Marianne Williamson, I'm rereading The Law of Divine Compensation, which is one of my very favorites. Nice. Um, and then I meditate for anywhere between 10 to 15 minutes. And by then, about an hour's gone by, and then I run to that phone. <laughs> it would be honest. No, totally. I hear you on that one. 
I love it. Um, so it's cool. That's really good. And it helps you, it, it gets you in that nice grounded state. And if you notice like your focus has improved and it really gets you in a better place overall. Yeah, it's huge. I, you know, when I travel, sometimes that routine sort of falls to the wayside. I don't travel with my book and my journal, you know, and so, and I do feel the difference. It's okay for one day, maybe two, but after that, you, first of all, you get out of the habit. And then when you get home, it's, it's more difficult. And second of all, you just find that throughout the day, you're not, you don't have the same level of groundedness. So true. Yeah. It's, um, I do, I teach a lot of meditation and, and, uh, I always challenge people when I'm working with them about how you have to stick with 30 days. Um, and you have, can't miss because neurologically, if you do, um, the brain resets and, and you have to go a whole another 30 days. And then I tell them once you're at 30, congratulate yourself, but you have 60 more to go before you make it a lifestyle to where it's like all of a sudden it feels so foreign to you not to. Uh, that's right. It's, you know, it's building that neural pathway so that it becomes something that's a habit. I love it. So this is good stuff. But I want to talk about your book. I love the title, The Elegant Warrior. Um, I, I read a book uh, called, I'm going to definitely read your book. I read a book called The Peaceful Warrior. And it was kind of cool for me to go through that. I don't, have you read it before? No, but I've heard of it since since the uh, my book came out. Someone else has told me that and I'm going to pick it up. Yeah, it's a good, great read. It's very quick. I think they did a movie on it too, if I'm not mistaken, but it's a very simple read. But back in my life when I read it, it was, I was this warrior type mindset, very like competitive, like, um, with myself, but like always having to strive and push, 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 which I don't do that anymore. Um, but reading the book really, really, uh, it, it took it to a different course. So I'm, and I saw when I read this, when I read your title, I was like, Ooh, this is a good one. I like this. And I love, you know, how to win life's trials without losing yourself. So awesome. So let, let's dive into the book. What's it, you know, first off, when anyone ever wrote a book, I always like to ask the question, who are you writing it for? I am writing it for all of those elegant warriors out there that want to be able to stand up for themselves, handle conflict when it comes, and still be true to all of the things we've been talking about here, Dr. Vic. You know, I come from a very spiritual background, and I believe really strongly in the power of intention and manifestation, and yet I'm in a job that's very high conflict, very high competition, and um, can sometimes be, you know, a bloodthirsty sport. And so I'm writing it for all those people that feel like they are, um, there's no way to have it all and, and to show that there are ways to stand up for yourself, to handle conflict and yet to be true to that part of you that is elegant. I love it. Was there something that kind of like inspired you and experience or just this, was this just something you always wanted to do? I, I've started, I'd say, four other books and not finished them. This book really came to me as something. It is a short book with short chapters that takes you through using stories from the courtroom and experiences from the courtroom. So, for example, the first chapter is complaints, which is the way that lawsuits start, but also the way that many of us start and end our days. And so I make the analogy between the two and I go through discovery, questions, objections, etc. And it was in seeing my experience in the courtroom and how it can be applied in everyday life that really inspired me to write the book. I love it. That's awesome. And the journey you take people through the book, it, what kind of like outcome do you want them to have or what they really grasp? If you can put that in a, a short response in some way or a long response, it not matter however you want to respond. Well, 
you know, it comes down to the word elegant, really, because when I first gave that as my title, some people questioned it and said, you know, is, is it only women that want to be elegant? Or maybe not all, everyone wants to be elegant. And I told you a little earlier that I'm obsessed with words. <laughs> the question of the word elegant is to choose. And I think that we choose our elegance. We choose what it means to us. And the idea is to consciously make that choice and then to stay true to it. So my hope with the book is that people make a conscious decision as to what elegance means to them and then use the tools in the book to be able to stand up for themselves, to create advocates of other people, to share their ideas, to make objections and overcome them, all while maintaining their own personal definition of elegance. I love that. That's so awesome. And with your... I love that word. I'm, I'm, I'm so I'm big into words too. I've been actually in the last six months, I've gotten really like into them to where I'm like, okay, where's the root? What does this mean? Yeah, I've always looking at the root. <laughs> and it's so, it's so amazing. Like some of the words we use, I'm like, do you even know what the basis of that word means and, and why are we using it? Um, and I can talk about hours on that, but when it, when it comes to, you know, when it comes people, do you feel that people, you know, when it comes to, like, cause when you say elegant to choose, what came to my head was, is like choosing your reality or choosing your outcome or choosing, you know, creating your own life in a sense is do you think people well first is that possible for people do you think people can control their destiny in a sense or be able to manifest xyz absolutely i think that you know just we were talking earlier about the rubber band and how a rubber band is a rubber band but it could be an eraser i think that there are so many possibilities out there and once you you first you have to see them because if you can't see them, they're never going to become your reality. And once you see them, then you have to just believe that it can become your reality. And I think that that's, you know, I, I opened the book by telling the story of a case where I had a catastrophically injured patient suing my doctor. And that patient was unable to get off his shoes at the beginning of a deposition. And I got down on my hands and knees and helped him pull his shoes off. He was uncomfortable and wanted his shoes off. And I pulled his shoes off. And yet I still had to... Uh, sit back down and question him in an adversarial position. And there are ways to maintain who you are and what you want to be, even in those times when you have to be in conflict or be adversarial or have a difference of opinion with people. And that possibility is real once you see it and once you become sort of hell-bent on being who you want to be. Love that. That's pretty good stuff. Do you think that when it comes to um, with your book and everything, because at the end the subtitle, you know, without losing yourself, do you do you, have you like in your with trials and things that you've done and all your experiences? Do you have like a, like see things in a certain way of how people lose themselves or a path that they do, especially with your psychology background? Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's, it's, yes, and it's another story that I tell in the book that um, lawyers when they go to trial sometimes lose their, their self-respect. You know, you find people doing things that are less than honest. And, you know, one time I left the courtroom and then I realized I had forgotten my umbrella. So I came back into the courtroom and found opposing counsel sort of nosing around in my papers. And it's definitely something that I don't think that person would otherwise do. But in times of competition, when we feel like there's not enough to go around and when it's a win-lose situation, people oftentimes lose themselves. And that's something that I have to work not to do, Dr. Vic, because when you're in those competitions, it becomes sort of 
more than sort of, it becomes tempting to do everything that you can do to win. But the truth of the matter is at the end of the day, you need to be able to look your competitors in the eye and you need to be able to look yourself in the eye. And so I really try to stop thinking about trials as competition with the other side and more about connection with the jury, because ultimately that was going to serve me as a human being, but also serve my client because you're more likely to win if you connect with the jury. I love that. And, and you bring up a really great point because when you, as you were talking, uh, what came to my mind is, um, you know, competition is um, scarcity lack in a sense mm-hmm. where, where you're like, we got to make connection this and, I, and, and curiosity, but it was more creativity. Came yep. to me. And, yeah. you know, and I always tell people like competitiveness, you, it's not, don't be competitive in anything you do. Be creative. That's and, right. And, and, and listen, it's not always easy. There are <laughs> jobs. There are situations. I, one of the things that is hard about trial law is it's a zero-sum game. There is a winner and there is a loser. And that's contrary to a lot of what you and I study and what a lot of you and I believe in. You know, if you read Abraham Hicks' work or Marianne Williamson's work, you know, they believe that everybody can win. But in trial, that's just not the way. It's the same thing as in like a basketball game. There's a winner and there's a loser. And so it's not always easy to say, don't be competitive and be creative, but there are ways to approach those situations where you can still maintain whatever it is that elegance means to you. Those things that are most important to you when you get outside of that competition can be maintained in those times of trial. I love it. I couldn't, I agree with you hundred percent there. Um, especially, uh, background in sports. Uh, definitely. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so you, we talk about words, right? So it, what, besides the elegant word, you have like a word that really fascinated you when you learned the root and was like, holy cow, this is totally different. Well, it's funny because I, any time that I'm studying a word, I, I look up, as you said, the origin, because I'm like, well, where did this come from? And even the word win, you know, we think of win as sort of putting another person down. But if you go back far enough, one of the origins of the word win is to gain. And so everyone can gain, right? It doesn't have to be at the expense of someone else. And so that's something that I sort of like to remind myself as well, that what can you, what can you gain in this situation without having to take something away from somebody else? That was an important one to me. Elegance, for sure. When I realized that the root of that word was to elect or to choose, it became sort of an obsession. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, almost every word I look up to see, well, what's the root of this word? And to your point, I then think like, wow, this is not at all what I thought it would be. Is there one that you've been studying in particular? Well, I was, I was at a seminar about words and uh, the, the, the gentleman uses uh, the word abracadabra. Uh, I, talk, I, I did a blog about this. Go ahead. I know. Go ahead. So, and he goes, I spoke all around the world. And every time I asked the word abracadabra, everyone remembers magic. And so I had a, I had an internationally well-known magician on my show. And so I go, I re- as soon as I get home, I email her. I'm like, I just want to know if this is true. I did my research. I can't find it. So I'm like, I know you will have the answers. And so when people think of abracadabra, they think of magic. But really, when you break it down, abracadabra means I speak, I create. Yes, speaking it into existence. Absolutely. I think it's a Hebrew root. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, I, that's, I love that one. You know, if you're into this stuff, we could geek out on this forever, but there's a, um, a linguist and I, I, her first name's Linda and I'm forgetting her last name, but she does this whole Ted talk about the importance of words and how your words create your reality. And if we're here in the United States and I sometimes do this with my keynotes and you ask everyone in the group to point North Everyone's going to be pointing in different directions. A lot of people point up. No one really seems to know where north is. But if you're in a certain area of Australia and you ask the people to point north, they know exactly where north is. And that's because they grow up talking about the the fork is to the north of your plate and your room is in the north part of the house. And everyone knows north because they talk about north. And the words that you use are creating what you know, what you understand in your reality. It's a Fabulous TED talk. I love it. I'll check it out too because in my my book I wrote about uh, chapter three was all about words are the fabric to your reality. Yep. Oh, you and, should definitely check it out then. Uh, her last name begins with a B. It's like Badonsky or something. I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, it's crazy how we can just, you know, it, for people, because I mean, when I talk to patients, I try to implement some of the mindset stuff. I don't have, a, you know, it's, I'm more as their chiropractor than anything, yeah. but but I, it, it plays a massive role in their health and their process. And it's it's amazing when I work with them and the ones that grasp it and they go, and I, it's a switch, just a little turn on the word or using something different or replacing it. And then I'll be like, keep saying that and feel what that feels like. And then all of a sudden they see their whole life shift and change. And I go, simple as that, isn't it? And they're just like, no way. This can't be because of this. I'm like, well, you don't have to believe if you don't want to, but <laughs> it's happening. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the word, words that we use, do they create a reality, period, full stop. I love it. Yeah, we can, we can go all day on words. It's a... Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a program. It's a conditioning. It's a, there's just so much to it. It's a vibration, a frequency, and so much more. Um, just to geek out one more thing about this. Have you ever heard of the water experiment? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> what do, we, do we know? Did you ever see that movie? Yep, I've seen it. Yeah, so that's where I first learned about the water experiment. But, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I believe in that wholeheartedly. It's, it's amazing how, I mean, my background's in energy medicine and I used to, when I would show people how vibrational emotions and vibrations and how they work, it was kind of interesting. I could stand in front of a room, 150, 200 people, and I'll bring someone up and we'll do muscle testing just to show where they're at. I would tell the person who I'm testing, please let me know if I go harder on the ones that you're stronger with versus the ones that you're weak with. Because... I take my two fingers, just push on their arm and, you know, it it just drop. It wouldn't have a bottom if it was weak. So I would use love versus hate and just show them the different emotions and then how powerful love is, how it could overcome all the hate in a room. And it was just kind of cool experiments we would do. But uh, just the power of that is unreal. Yeah. I mean, when the, for for the listeners who don't know what Dr. Vick's talking about with the water thing is when they... They spoke, they, the researchers spoke to water and some of them, they said negative words, nasty things and others, positive words and positive things, and then looked at them under the microscope and the difference in the water particles or uh, atoms, I guess, I'm not, uh, never did well in chemistry, was just amazing. Yeah, the, the molecular structure of water. So if I love it would turn into the hexagonal crystallized form, which is the highest vibration of water. And then hate would be very chaotic and um, scattered and not really well organized. Yeah, and then uh, and so it's it just lines up to everything we're doing because I always tell people too like it, if if that's if that's true and we're made up of seventy percent water then <laughs> now you understand how your thoughts and your emotions play a role on your health. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I love it. Um, 
Awesome stuff here. I'm trying to see one last question I had, you know, well, there's two actually. You talk about the curse of knowledge. Yeah. I, I would love just to dive into that just for a few. All right. So here's the curse of knowledge at work, Dr. Vic. What am I humming? Uh, yeah, that one's a tough one for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that game is super frustrating for me, the Hummer. One, because your entire audience is like, who's this nutty lady humming on this podcast? And two, because I know what I'm humming. It was, we are the champions, queen. Ah, okay. I had a, I had a feeling, but I, I just, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> but yeah, so I knew it was We Are the Champions. And I'm thinking, why can't this guy get it? It's so easy because I had the curse of knowledge. I knew something so well that it was really hard for me to imagine what it's like not to know that. And we all have the curse of knowledge on something in our life. It might be the thing that you've chosen as your vocation. You know, so the doctors that I serve, they have the curse of knowledge when it comes to medicine. I have the curse of knowledge when it comes to law. And overcoming that curse of knowledge makes you a much better communicator. It makes you much more credible and persuasive, and it makes you a better advocate. So one of the things I work with the doctors who I represent to do is to help them to use words and, and um, phrases or examples that are going to resonate best with the jury, that the jury is going to really understand. So instead of always referring to a vascular doctor, we talk about a circulation doctor or a blood doctor. You know, we explain these things so that we can overcome that curse of knowledge as best we can. That is so powerful. Um I love when you see I, I, when I was listening to the curse of knowledge, I was like, you know, you're saying like, you know, as a lawyer and I thought, why don't they get it? And it's like the same thing as a chiropractor. We go through that. We, we, we forget what it's like to be a patient. Yes. And one of the problems with that in my world is that everyone in that courtroom, every single person is or has been a patient. Yeah. But usually the only doctor is the doctor who I represent. And so to be able to get that perspective, all the things that we talked about, you know, about 40 minutes ago, is to be able to ask questions and find ways to overcome the curse of knowledge. Powerful stuff. Yes. And once you do that, you make the connection, the perspective, and all that becomes better in the end. Yep. That's right. I love it. So, Heather, how can people connect with you and get, you know, see what you're up to and so forth and all the stuff you have, book? I know you have a podcast too and so forth. Yeah. So, my, um, my website is Heather Hansen Presents and it's H A N S E N. So, Heather Hansen Presents.com. The book is The Elegant Warrior How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself. And that's available for sale, pre sale on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you go to my website and sign up for my weekly newsletter, you will get the information about pre sale for the book. And I'm going to do some packages with some webinars and some ebook offerings for people who buy on pre sale. So you want to sign up for that. And then the podcast is The Elegant Warrior. And I'm really excited because Judge Aquilina, the judge we were talking about a little earlier with that fabulous question, she's one of my upcoming guests. I have a lot of really fabulous guests coming up. So all of that is out there on that famous distracting internet. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Oh, I love it. Well, Heather, this, this was fun. I appreciate having you on. And uh, uh, yeah, we could have geeked out in so many different ways. But, oh my uh, gosh. Well, we'll have to do it again, Dr. Vic. I've had a fabulous time. Yeah, definitely. I'll definitely have you back on and we can definitely go in more into the whole word. We'll make it a whole word thing and have fun with that. Oh my God, I would love that. The word thing is, uh, it's, it's enough for a whole hour. 
We're going to definitely do it. So thank you again. I appreciate you and I appreciate all that you're doing and, and, and your book and everything. And I'm definitely going to get that and check you out and, and uh, uh, appreciate what you're doing for people. Seriously. Thank you so much, Dr. Vick. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. For past shows, please visit www.empoweryourreality.com. I hope this show inspired you and added to your life to help you on the journey to rediscover who you really are. To connect with us on Facebook, please visit www.facebook.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. Check us out on Twitter. The handle is Dr. Vic 21. Follow us on Instagram, www.instagram.com forward slash Dr. Vic Manzo. If you were inspired by the podcast, Pay it forward by sharing it with someone who you know can benefit from it. Thank you again for listening to the Mindful Experiment podcast, sharing paths to help you rediscover your infinite potential. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing it with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling.